Well, good evening, and happy Valentine's Day. It's convenient that this evening we'll be looking at Song of Songs, which is a book that is all about romantic love. Of course, we've been studying this book now for some weeks, and as we've been going through it, we have learned a great deal about romantic love and how God designed it for us as human beings. I've said this before, and it's very clear that in the scriptures, the bride and the bridegroom picture Christ in the church. Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Now, understand that this Eastern love poem that we've talked so much about already, the Song of Songs, is in fact a poem about human sexuality, romance, and love. Now, the reason that that is a picture for us of our relationship with Christ is because God loves us the way that a bridegroom loves a bride. But it's not to, to think for a minute that it's, that it's about that in particular. It's about a relationship between a bridegroom and a, and a bride. And we get to chapter 4, where we are this evening. We've looked at the relationship that they had in the courtship in chapters 1 through 3 that led us to chapter 4 where we have already seen the wedding in chapter 3 and of course this evening in chapter 4 believe it or not an entire chapter in God's word is dedicated to communicating the love that's experienced between a bridegroom and a bride on their honeymoon so this is probably not an appropriate study for very young children but I don't see any very young children here tonight, so I think we're okay. I've shared this before, that the Hebrew scholars preferred that, uh, actually it was forbidden for anyone under the age of 30 to even read or study this book. So you can imagine uh, that we are fortunate we don't have those restrictions, but as a result, it's important to know that we'll be talking about things that, that certainly are, while not perverse and certainly not pornographic, are direct. And because they're direct, we're going to talk about human love, romance, and sexuality. Let's open in a word of prayer. We'll be using, as always, we'll be using a translation by Dr. S. Craig Glickman, which will be on the screen. Uh, Your NIV is very similar. Uh, You may find it easier to follow along as we go to the screen in just a minute. But I'll be going through that, and we'll be looking at chapter 4 this evening, which really is all about a night to remember. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd give me wisdom and the ability to communicate your word in a way that is both uh, delicate but direct. And Lord, we pray as we study your word that not just would we gain an appreciation for human sexuality, romance, and intimacy, but that we would also gain an understanding of just how much you truly love us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is the first night for the bride and groom. And of course, anyone who is married, who has been married, uh, understands that many honeymoon nights could easily be compared to learning how to dance. It is certainly not something, especially if you've kept yourself pure and you are, are, are with this person for the first time, as it should be, as God designed marriage to be, honeymoons can be stressful times. They can be difficult and challenging. Uh, <laughs> The key to this evening being a night to remember is the communication that takes place before the consummation. The communication before the intimacy. 
That's what allows individuals, and these individuals in this love poem, to experience romance and sexuality as God designed it. And its communication we're going to see first in the first seven verses. And so I'll read from the translation. It'll be up on the screen. We read in verse 1, This is the king speaking to the bride. Behold, you are beautiful, my darling. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves from behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats which descend from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, all of which are paired, not one of them is alone. Like a scarlet thread are your lips, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Like the Tower of David is your neck, built for warfare. A thousand shields hang upon it, all the shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes and shadows flee, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether fair, my love, and there is no blemish in you. Now I want you to recognize that in in these first seven verses, there's no actual physical intimacy described. This is simply communication of feelings. This is heart-to-heart communication. And what we're seeing here in this section is that the groom is praising the bride with a sevenfold praise. Now, those of you who have studied the scriptures know, I'm sure, that the number seven is the number of perfection. And so this is sevenfold or perfect praise of the bride by the bridegroom. He starts with her eyes. Her eyes are doves, bright and alert, soft and innocent. And by the way, later in chapter 5, she praises him in the same exact way. He says her hair is like a flock of goats. And it might seem odd to us to use some of the metaphor here or the simile. uh, But understand, there's, there's things that are being said through these pictures that are being painted. A lot of this doesn't come through very clearly in English. Uh, or even in our culture today. The description of her hair indicates that her hair was long and flowing in nature. And her hair sort of descending down her shoulders is a description like the flock of goats from afar coming down the hill. So you can imagine that that is an accurate description. He says your teeth are like a flock of sheep, and, and that may seem odd to us, but Sheep are generally white, so her teeth are bright. Her smile is even and complete. Notice, basically, she has all of her teeth. Uh, You know, when he says it this way, (laughs) all of which are paired and not one of them is alone. It's a good thing. (laughs) And, And it's important to understand, here he's talking about the features of her face. All right? Uh, there's still more here, but so you, you have her eyes. We've talked about that already. You have her hair, and he's, he seems to be captivated by her hair. He even says that in chapter 7, verse 5. We'll get there. Not tonight, but, but the fact that her, her smile is a beautiful white smile that promotes a smile in return is a way of him putting her at ease through praise. So those are the first three praises. Then we get to uh, her lips. 
And her lips are described as a scarlet thread, like, like a scarlet ribbon, delicately outlined. And he's essentially saying you have a perfectly shaped mouth. So all these are beautiful aspects of praise as he's looking directly into her eyes. He also comments on her temples. Now, that would indicate her cheeks and her face. So basically her face, her her profile, her cheeks. They're like the halves of a pomegranate. Now, this is basically saying that she's healthy. Her her cheeks are red. She's her, her skin, her She's radiant, basically. Flushed with excitement, she's, she, she looks healthy. And so all of these are aspects of praise that were communicated by the bridegroom, but understood and appreciated by the bride. Now, when he gets to her neck, this may seem a little odd to us to talk about someone like this, but this has to do with the posture, how someone carries themselves. Your neck is like the Tower of David. The, the Tower of David in the city was a sign of strength. It was a, a sign of nobility. It was a, a way of saying you have a very strong and graceful posture. Have you ever seen someone, uh, maybe in a film, or met someone, and you can look at them and say, they kind of look like they may be a ballet dancer? It always seems like, and, and, and it's not that their neck is longer than the normal person, but because they're so often correcting their posture and standing properly, their neck actually looks longer, and maybe over time that generally happens, but, but that, that posture, that regality, if I can say it that way, is what he's describing. And it's not just indicative of the way she looks, it speaks of who she is her character, her integrity, uh, that she's like that tower, faithful and reassuring, and that she commands awe and respect like the tower. So it may seem odd to use this as a description of praise, but it's actually not. It says so much about this person, and obviously he wouldn't have said something that would have been misinterpreted by her on their honeymoon. So I'm, I'm trying to explain to you the culture of the day and the words that are used and the implication of the praise, but it is poetry. And maybe you're not a big fan of poetry, but even if you read English poetry, you're going to read verses that seem abstract at times because that's the whole aspect of, of poetry that appeals to us, that we say things with, with, with such flavor and in a way that maybe we've never heard them said before. So yes, there's the poetic element, there's the cultural aspects, there's the words that are used, uh, there's the ancient lifestyle and the things that were happening at that time that are important to know if you're going to properly understand these praises. Now, he gets to her breasts, and of course the Bible does talk about breasts. So not just here, throughout the Bible, you'll see that word used. Now, it's interesting because we have such a prudish approach to sexuality in the church generally, not always. So anytime you get on the subject of of love and human sexuality, people get uncomfortable, like we can't talk about this in church, like somehow it's inappropriate. I think this shows, and we'll see more of this tonight, that the Bible isn't a prudish book. It's not a pornographic book, but it's not a prudish book. And, you know, I think as you mature and you become older, you can approach romance and sexuality and intimacy with a maturity that allows you to appreciate it. It's not a dirty thing. It's not something that we should shy away from or feel is inappropriate in church, but rather 
Where, if not in church, should we gain a better understanding of sex and intimacy and romance as God designed it? And so this book is very important. It's very unique in that way, among the other books of the Bible. But here he describes her breasts as being soft and gentle, and there is, as he implies, a a strong desire to caress her, because that's what you feel when you love someone, when you're romantically involved with with them. When you're intimate, you desire to touch, you desire that, and that's normal and to be experienced within marriage. And we've been talking about that through their courtship. They were very careful not to arouse love until it awakens, not to get involved physically, passionately, until they were committed in marriage. And so he sees her as flawless, and so he gives her perfect praise. Now, what is he doing? What is he doing? He is being sensitive to her possible insecurities. Everyone has insecurities. And verbal assurance is just as important as physical touch. Yes, physical touch is a part of intimacy, but so is verbal assurance. And without it, it makes the romantic experience cold and detached and even anxiety-ridden. And so there is this need for communication. And I've said to many couples over the years that if you have good communication in your relationship before you get married, you will have good communication in your intimacy after you're married. Because that's what human sexuality and romance is. It's communication. And it's a communication that is intimate, but it is a communication that should be experienced between a husband and a wife. And sadly, I think a lot of people damage their relationship by getting involved before they're married or they've had a number of experiences that have been damaging to their understanding of sex and romance. So consequentially, they don't experience all that God has for them. But God desires for us to experience this in a way that is both a blessing to us and ministers to us and and meets all of our needs emotionally, physically, spiritually even. All of these needs are of a concern to God. God is concerned about each and every one of your needs and all of your needs. And we are, as you well know, body, soul, and spirit. We have a conscious, we, we have emotions, we have feelings. That would be our psyche, our soul. We have a body, and the, we have to eat. You know, we, we, we thirst, we desire We have these desires. God designed us to have them. And he's given us the place in marriage to experience intimacy and have those desires fulfilled. So this is what God presents to us in his word so we'll understand. He loves us and meets our needs. And this is how he does that. Now, he also communicates his attraction to her. Now, scripture endorses the appreciation of outer and inner beauty. It is not only okay to appreciate outer and inner beauty, it is essential in a romantic relationship and especially in a marriage. Outer and inner beauty, it is okay. I I just wish the church as a whole over the centuries hadn't become so prudish about this 
because it's sad. Many people in the church get married and they don't understand how God designed human sexuality and that it's not a dirty thing. It's not a nasty thing. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing. God has blessed us with this, but it needs to be experienced according to his will and according to his word. God approves of physical attraction between a man and a woman. He approves of that. Now, sin causes us to have unhealthy attractions, even perverse attractions, and maybe even attractions that are homosexual or perverse in other ways. But God designed men to be attracted to women and women to be attracted to men. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't look at someone and say, well, that's an attractive guy, you know. We tend to say it that way, though, you know, so that no one gets the wrong idea. That's an attractive guy, you know, with a little bit lower voice so no one mistakes us, you know. And, of course, women will say, you know, well, she looks really pretty in that dress. Like, we, we, it's okay to, we can see that, but it's different, let's be honest. When a man is attracted to a woman, when a woman is attracted to a man, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Now, if you're married... That's not the appropriate time in life to be in that place. Now, you can understand if someone's attractive, you can appreciate that. But allowing yourself to be attracted to them, well, that, that's not appropriate. We understand that. You're, after you're married, you're supposed to be a, a, attracted to and involved in, a, in an intimate relationship with one person. So you don't entertain those thoughts. You don't allow yourself to do that. But it's not as if you don't understand or can't see that that person is attractive. You just are mature with those observations and feelings, right? So I just think it's important to state right here and now that the things he says to her on her honeymoon were things he already felt in his heart before, things she already felt. It's not as if a switch, you know, a light switch goes from like, I don't even think that way to now I'm on my honeymoon and that's all I can think about. You know, there's a gradual buildup in the relationship from the time you meet someone that starts with attraction, but then ultimately becomes, in marriage, passion. But that's a buildup over time. It's the way God designed the courtship and the marriage to be. So the groom is now, having praised the the bride in a sevenfold praise, he responds to a previous request by the bride. Now, I didn't get too much into this in chapter 2, but I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 17. I'll read it for you. Uh, In in chapter 2, verse 17, she had said to herself, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of separation. Now, what is that? That is a, a desire, a strong desire that she is expressing within herself to be physically intimate with the man that she loves. She also told us several times, don't awaken love until it pleases. But she is careful to communicate here that she desires this man to make love to her. You should feel that way before you get married. In fact, if you don't, probably wait until you do. I think it's essential that you have that strong desire to be intimate with the person you're about to marry, right? And so... Again, when we have these notions that are prude or these notions that stifle attraction and affection, we damage the relationship that God designed for us in marriage. And so that's why I'm being so clear on this. So she said that, right? I'm going to read it one more time so that you understand. That was very subtle, 
but it was clearly an invitation or, or the expression of a desire. When she said it this way, in chapter 2, verse 17, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains or on the mountains of separation. He now addresses that, looking back in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. So he's responding, really, to a request that... She had sort of made in her own heart. She hadn't necessarily expressed this to him directly. Maybe later she did, but this is how she feels. And now he responds to this because she had longed for the time that they would be together physically. She had described them spending the entire night together. She was looking forward to her honeymoon. And she used the metaphor of the mountains to describe her breasts. So, when she mentioned it in chapter 2, it was the mountains of separation. Now, the language is a little bit more direct, because in verse 7, excuse me, in in verse 6, he does say, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, that would be the entire evening, I will go my way to the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's using the same language, and what he's essentially saying is, like she desired for them to be together intimately, he is expressing a desire to be together intimately. Now, they're on their honeymoon, so it's the appropriate time and place to express those things. But he does. He's communicating that now is the time for them to be intimate. And he repeats her description of this evening together. And he builds upon the metaphor of mountains to describe her breasts, and he continues by describing the experience of being near her as intoxicating perfumes which are fragrant and refreshing. This is poetry, so of course it's poetic. But I'm going to remind you of something else. And going back, I believe it was chapter 1, she speaks to herself in chapter 1, and she speaks to herself in in verse 13, saying, a pouch of myrrh, which is a a spice, it's a... um, like an essential oil, really. It's like a perfume. A pouch of myrrh is my beloved to me, which lies all night between my breasts. You see, there's a subtle and direct way, both subtle and direct way, of saying what's being said, but saying in a way that's poetic. You know, it's not graphic to the point where it makes people feel uncomfortable, at least it shouldn't. It is It is poetry that describes the sexual sexual experience. And so she has talked about this and talked about herself in this way. He picks up on that imagery and he repeats his perfect praise. Verse 7. In verse 7, you are all together fair, my love, and there is no blemish in you. That's perfect praise. He's done a sevenfold praise and now he once again talks about her in wonderful terms. He's communicating, yes, it's the time for them to be together, but he praises her. He's being sensitive to her possible apprehension. Everyone has a degree of apprehension when they are together for the first time, which again should be your honeymoon. But everyone has that apprehension. He is incredibly sensitive to the possibility that she is apprehensive, which, of course, I'm sure she was. Verbal reassurance is essential to inspire 
confidence. In all aspects of life, when someone encourages you, you can do this. This, this is something you're capable of. You know, that encouragement goes a long way to building confidence. And in this area of life, encouragement is helpful, especially coming from the person that you love and desire to be with intimately. So, again, we're getting back to communication, which is what sex really is. It's communication. And it's verbal, yes, but it's communication. It's physical, yes, but it's communication. And I want to point this out. He is communicating his desire for her. Scripture endorses their desire to make love, to be together. God approves of sexual expression in marriage. Marriage is honorable in all things, right? And the marriage bed pure. God tells us that in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is the commitment necessary for experiencing unrestrained passion. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that want to experience passion. I understand that. It's normal and natural to do so. But when we allow ourselves to experience unrestrained passion outside of a committed relationship, that is marriage, we destroy the relationship. I've heard it described in this way. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a fireplace. My wife and I have a small fireplace in our home. It's a small home, but we're fortunate enough to have a fireplace. Fire in the fireplace is really good. In the kitchen, it's not so good. Because if we have the fire that was supposed to be in the fireplace in the kitchen, we're calling the fire department. Things have gotten out of control. And this is what happens in relationships, sadly, even within the church sometimes. People fall in love, and they, of course, feel all of the things we've been talking about. And they should. It's normal. It's natural. It's even ordained by God. But they give themselves over to that unrestrained passion before they've made their commitment in marriage, and they begin to burn the house down. The unrestrained fire of passion in a relationship without commitment in marriage will destroy the relationship. It destroys lives. It destroys relationships. And I am very careful to say this because we live in a world that considers these things to be antiquated, this way of thinking to be Victorian and, and, and something that, oh, nobody, th- pastor, nobody talks like that anymore. Everyone just sort of accepts that you're going to live together before you're married and experience sex and sexuality with that person, maybe even have a family. Do all of these things before you even make the commitment to be married. And of course, there aren't very many good relationships in this world today as a consequence of these decisions. So I've said it, I'm pretty careful to say it, but I'm not saying it like, no, it's bad and you can only experience it if you're married. I'm saying it's so good that you need to be married to experience it. Can I hear an amen? Okay. So hopefully you've heard me this evening. I've been very careful to communicate that properly. And so now we have concern. We had communication. We now have concern. Now, why is concern important? Because you can communicate how you feel, but if you're not concerned about the other person, if you're not thinking about them more than yourself, then the sexual experience is not a very good one. And so concern. And here's the first thing we see in verse 8. He's speaking with her. He has just praised her. He's been very direct and reassuring, but he says in verse 8 of chapter 4, 
With me from Lebanon, O bride, with me from Lebanon come. Journey from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. Very poetic language. What is he saying? He's calling this bride from her fears. All of those things seem to be very fearful things. He's calling her away from her fears and asking her to give her thoughts completely to him. See, if you focus on fear, you're going to become more fearful. And when someone reassures you, and like the Bible does so often, fear not, it's God's way of telling us you don't need to be afraid. And that's exactly what he's telling her. And that's a very sensitive thing to communicate. Here it is communicated poetically. Put your focus on us at this time. There's no need to be afraid. He reassures her before being intimate. He stills her fears and perhaps her thoughts of home, which she's describing in Lebanon. He's describing uh, these different places in Sinir and Hermon. This was in the north. This is the area of the Middle East where she was from. And he's saying, don't worry about those things anymore. Come, come in this direction with your thoughts. Don't allow them to go toward your fears and to your life before this moment. Let's focus in on here and now. Intimacy begins when there is a total focus of one lover's thoughts upon the other. Distraction will destroy passion. So you need to have focus. And of course, in romance and sexuality, foreplay is designed to prepare the body and the soul for intercourse. That's why there needs to be that communication. That's why there needs to be that, that, that aspect of sexuality. Because it prepares you for the experience that God blesses us with. And sexual intercourse is genuine giving, as God designed it. And cannot be truly experienced if a person is distracted or being selfish. And all of this comes out loud and clear in the description of the bridegroom as he communicates to the bride. And this request by the groom reveals his heart. He wanted to patiently bring her to the fullest experience possible on their wedding night. And that is the ideal bridegroom, but that also begins to help us understand why God uses this the relationship, this relationship, to help us to understand his love for us. Because while we haven't even gotten to any of the actual sexuality described in this chapter, you already see how dear the bride is to the bridegroom. How patient, how caring the bridegroom is. How his focus is on her and on nothing else. And in that regard, you can look to Christ. And as the bride of Christ, as the church, understand that in the way that a bridegroom desires and longs for a bride, Christ desires and longs to spend eternity with you. Amen? It's a picture. It's an allegory. It's not a perfect representation because we don't have a physical relationship with God or even a sexual relationship. That's not the point. But the intensity of that relationship is what's compared to the intensity of the spiritual relationship that we have with Christ. And so, he calls her from her fears to his arms. Now, 
In verses 9 through 11, the groom seeks to fulfill his bride's desires over his own. I've already said that you can't be distracted. You also can't be very selfish for romance and sexual intimacy to be experienced as God designed it. There must be a lack of distraction, but there also must be a lack of selfishness. And that is what's described here. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, you have made my heart beat fast, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat fast with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful are your caresses, my sister, my bride. How much better are your caresses than wine and the fragrance of your perfumes than any spice. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Of course, she was from Lebanon, so that makes sense. But what he's politely describing to us is they've gone from communicating to being physical. I mean, this is the first time they've been together in this way, and he's describing it in, in, in a wonderful way, but he is describing physical intimacy at this point. Uh, he was excited by just a look from her eyes. And, and he uses the term sister, and that may seem a little weird to, uh, for us, to, a word that you probably wouldn't look to use on your honeymoon with your wife, but it's an affectionate term for one's wife in this culture. It's, it's an affectionate term. We don't understand that translation because in our culture it doesn't seem appropriate, but it was appropriate to that time. And she's not passive either. She's not. She's so reassured and so encouraged and so confident that she's loved that now she's beginning to respond to him physically. In fact, I'll say it politely, it seems from this text that passionate kissing was around long before the French. That's what's being described. I don't think you missed that. I hope you didn't. I want to break it down for you. And this is, this is important for all of us to remember. Attention in dating. Attention in dating. What is dating? Dating is getting to know somebody. Okay, let's, let's, let's just break this down. Dating is just simply spending time with someone in order to get to know them. And people sometimes want to say you shouldn't date. I, I don't know. I think you should get to know someone. So you want to call it dating. You want to call it something else. Affection in dating. Dating takes on new meaning when it begins to enter the courtship phase because courtship is dating with intention, right? It's, it's, and that's where you can begin to experience affection because now you're not just spending time with someone to get to know them. You're actually beginning to build a long-term committed love relationship in courtship. You're actually preparing for marriage. So at that point, affection is appropriate. Attention in dating, affection in courtship. When we get to marriage, that is where passion should be experienced. So, if you're passionately kissing while you're dating or you're in courtship, you have stepped over the line. You have to be careful because once you enter passion, there are oftentimes consequences in your relationship. And, and more and more people really have to be told this you know, I, I, I know that we live in an age where we think this stuff is like old-fashioned, but it's not. It's not. What was appropriate then in the Bible is still appropriate today. Now, what am I saying? You can't kiss somebody you're, in, you know, mar- or get, going to get married to? I'm not saying that. I am saying that there's an appropriate amount of passion or intimacy that you want to experience before you're married, and it's very little. Because... Passion is designed to lead to sex. I don't think I'm 
telling anyone anything they don't already know. All right? <laughs> I mean, that's how this thing works, right? So if you're getting involved in that way, you're kind of starting up the car, but not really able to go anywhere. And sooner or later, people end up where they didn't think they were going to go. And that's how you get there, to the bad places. Because you didn't think twice before you went in the direction that the Bible says is inappropriate while you're dating or even in courtship. And so that's, those are the boundaries. Those are the things that are best followed in a relationship. Now, with that as, as the standard, let me say it this way. You date someone and give them attention until you figure out whether or not you would like to be married to this person. But once you kind of figure out, you know, I'd like to be married to this person, and you start to show affection, probably a good idea to get married pretty quickly. I wouldn't encourage anyone to have a very long engagement because that works against you in a pure relationship. It would be better for you to, while you're experiencing that affection and courtship, prepare yourself for marriage and then get married so you can experience passion in God's way. Amen? You know, three-year engagement, probably a bad idea. I would think. I would think. Months, certainly not years. That would be my point. Okay. Now, there is also a strong illusion here, not illusion, allusion, to inheriting the blessings of God's promised land. In their intimacy, you see some strong allusions. For example, a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey are mentioned here, the promised land. Man receives the blessings and the riches of the land. Woman becomes the wonderful gift from God that the land represented. And so these, the metaphor, the, the allegory takes on new meaning here is the promise to the Jewish people was the land. The promise to the bridegroom was the bride. And so those terms are used here. And it's, you know, there are layers of poetry here. And some of it's spiritual. Some of it's not. But all of it points us in the direction of God's promises. Amen? Okay, so there's a lot here. I could probably talk about it for another hour. I won't. Because it'll get way too quiet in here, right? Let's see. Now we get to the last section here. And in verse 12 of chapter 4, we go from communication to concern to consummation. And surprisingly, this is really not necessarily an explicit section. It's really not. With all the talking that's gone on, you get to this place and it's kind of, oh, really? Oh, that's all? Okay, I thought they were going to be more descriptive. Later on in the book, uh, as the couple becomes intimate in marriage, there's a little bit more of a description of their intimacy. But here, it, it, not so much. Here, the point is to communicate to us how important it is for those in a romantic relationship to be committed, to communicate, to be concerned for one another, that those things are essential if you're going to experience intimacy God's way. And so we pick it up in verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are a paradise of pomegranates with excellent fruit, henna blossoms with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all kinds of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the choicest spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. Now, of course, this is poetry. And so much of this love poem takes place in the countryside. And so they use metaphor and they use uh, simile and allegory and, and they liken love to a garden environment being in the countryside. And that is picked up here and carried forward to help us to understand 
the physical intimacy between this couple. In fact, the groom is gently requesting that she give herself to him in verses 12 through 15. Now, the scene is sacramental. It's shy. It's grave. It's sweet. It's not pornographic. It's not nasty. It's none of those things. It's not supposed to be, nor does it need to be. To communicate what needs to be communicated here doesn't take it being explicit or graphic. His words are delicate, they're indirect, they're poetic. He compares her to a lovely garden and a fountain, which is where they spend so much time when they were courting. And he poetically praises her purity, her virginity, before being intimate with her. That much should be clear by the language. And then he expounds upon this poetic imagery. Now understand, Hebrew poetry is not so much about rhyming. Rhyming wasn't the way that Hebrew poetry was constructed. It is constructed through progressive parallelism. That is, you say something, you say it again, and you continue to say it in grander ways. So you might say, well, the sky is beautiful. The sky is extremely beautiful with white clouds. The sky is extremely beautiful in such a way that the light shines forth and lights the earth. What I've done is describe the sky in a progressive way so that I start by describing the sky, but by the time I end that parallelism, I've gotten to a place where I've described it in, in an abundant way. That's Hebrew poetry. And I'm giving you an example in English, but that, that's what Hebrew poetry does. And so when he says this, a garden, a fountain, a well of living water, and streams flowing, flowing from Lebanon, he starts small, and, he, and he, just a grander description of their relationship and her beauty and who she is, and he's praising her again. And all of this praise, again, a poetic invitation. Understand that a spring locked and a fountain sealed would nourish one garden at the most. A garden fountain would nourish many gardens. A well of living water would supply an entire city streams flowing from Lebanon would prosper an entire countryside. So you have this this progressive praise of her in this way, using the same imagery, that of a fountain, that of a garden. Well, then the bride responds, and in verse 16, after she receives, in this intimate setting, on their honeymoon, after she receives the invitation to be intimate, she says... Remember, using the same language of of a garden. She's been described as a garden. And he sort of describes her, uh, him, as the north wind that comes into the garden and creates the fragrance of the garden. All right? Awake, in verse 16, the bride to the king, Awake, O north wind, and come wind of the south. Blow upon my garden and let its spices flow forth. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its excellent fruit. Again, poetic language to describe intimacy. And isn't it a good thing? God, God knows how to communicate to us these things without being embarrassing or graphic or explicit. It says it without saying it, and that's what poetry often does. Here, she uses the same imagery to offer herself to him. The breezes of spring are the fragrant messengers of the garden. You'll oftentimes know where a garden is because when the wind blows, you can smell the flowers. You can smell the fragrances. And so she now requests that those breezes blow upon her garden and bring her lover to her. This is a most poetic invitation. 
her response to his invitation. And then in verse 1, or the first part of verse 1 in chapter 5, he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And essentially, he's communicating that they consummated their marriage. And it completes the imagery, the beautiful poetic imagery of them being intimate. He describes their love as a beautiful garden that he has enjoyed and the experience as a celebration, the celebration of a great feast. And so again, delicate, appropriate, but direct. And the voice of God chimes in at the end of this, really. It's really the poet speaking to the bride and the king. This is someone outside of their intimacy speaking to the lovers as they experience intimacy. And uh, it could be the poet speaking, but it really it represents the voice of God who approves and affirms this night to remember. And I think that's so important to understand when you do things God's way, when you experience marriage and intimacy God's way, there is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no reason to feel bad about the experience. And the truth is, in the world, when people experience sex and sexuality for the first time in their life, and it's outside of marriage, it's almost always accompanied by great shame. And what happens over time is people give themselves over to to that behavior, and then they don't feel any shame. They're without shame, because that's what happens. You become calloused when you continue to sin. You, you, You don't really think about it anymore. But most people, when they experience things that are not necessarily bad, but are bad outside of doing it God's will, according to God's will and God's way. Uh, what happens is, in that, in that moment, people feel ashamed. And they, and they really kind of should, because they've defied God's way and God's will and God's word. But that goes away when you continue to sin, the, the sin that's often repeated. It calluses the heart. And that's why people can sort of do these things without thinking twice. But as they enter in, to a sexual experience the first time. Most people feel this way. If you do things God's way, you will never feel that way. Ever. Because in marriage, you don't have to feel shame. Because God approves. And indeed, look at verse 1 later, the latter half. Eat, O loved ones, drink and be drunk, O lovers. So following that imagery of a feast or a garden, this experience is described... God approves this night. He desires for all of us to experience sexual fulfillment in marriage. He vigorously endorses and affirms the love of this couple. He takes pleasure in what has taken place. Indeed, he designed sex and romance. It's it's not something that we experience apart from God in humanity. We experience God's desires designed by him for humanity. That's so important to understand. Scripture approves and affirms sexual fulfillment. In the New Testament, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, where he makes it clear spouses should be intimate. They should be others-centered in their intimacy, and they should not abstain from being intimate. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs in chapter 5, it talks about this in this way, that spouses should be faithful and pure to each other, And spouses should be enjoying satisfying sexual intimacy. Why would the Bible say these things if sex was bad? No, it's not. 
According to God's design, the way he designed it, it is a wonderful gift and experience from God. And so, a beautiful wedding night is the result of a beautiful courtship. And when you do things God's way in courtship, you experience God's blessings in marriage. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, we recognize that these things, well, the descriptions here talk about the way you designed us as human beings for physical intimacy. You literally designed us for the experience and the experience for us. And when we have a proper understanding of that, there need not be any shame, only joy, no regret. Oh, Lord, help all of our single people who are seeking a relationship like this to find it according to your will and experience it according to your word. And for those of us who are married, continue to bless our relationships romantically and physically in all the ways that you desire to bless our relationships. Lord, we pray for all of the children in the church. We're very young, most of them very young right now, but as they get older, these are the things that they're going to desire and, and, and understand. And, and, and may we help them to understand these things from a biblical perspective and not shy away from teaching them the truth about intimacy as, the, as your word teaches us when the time is appropriate. And we pray that you just set a hedge about our young people, especially the children, as they get older, that they wouldn't be taken advantage of by the world and those within it. And they wouldn't give themselves over to their desires and their unrestrained passion, but they would wait on you and look to you and receive the blessing of a life of purity and a night to remember on their honeymoon that they don't need to be ashamed of anything, but just to experience all the blessings that you have for them. Lord God, as we know that this speaks of your great love for us, what greater love is there in, in a human relationship, really, in, in our relationships than that of a, a husband and a wife loving each other? And you've used that relationship to just help us to understand your great love for us. You are the perfect bridegroom, and we desire to be the bride, ever loving you in return. Lord, help us to love you with our hearts our minds, our soul, our strength. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.